Will you marry me? Jenny turns and looks at him. I'd make a good husband, Jenny. (laughs) You would, Forrest, she says. But you won't marry me? You you don't want to marry me, she says. Why don't you love me, Jenny? She responds only with silence in this beautiful scene that most of you recognize from this savant-like character in the middle of a tale where he has pursued this woman for all her life. He says this, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And then he exits. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And we sense when we watch Forrest Gump that he's right. That he does know something about what love is. And it's not the sort of thing that he just talks about. You see it in the the constancy of his self-giving towards this person who doesn't return it. You see it in his defense of her. And his loyalty toward her. And when you watch it, it's a splendid sort of thing. You can't help but be moved by it unless, of course, you've got a heart of stone. That's why the movie, I think, was well-regarded and well-rewarded at Oscar time. Because it's a living depiction of a concept that everybody's enamored with, but few people know how to put into action. And so a fictitious character like Forrest Gump puts it into action and we're stunned. And we find it alarmingly good. Today we're going to try and talk a bit about love. It's the wedding season after all. I'm thinking about weddings coming up and love, true love. (laughs) It's the sort of thing, that's from the Princess Bride that some of you need to know. It's the sort of thing that we talk about a lot. It's a word that the Bible talks about a lot. It's a concept that's forever before us. We are a nation, says Dallas Wilder, of people who love love, but are often unable to love actual people. It's the sort of thing there's a mass deal of confusion about. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to look a little bit at the scriptures, a study of, of love, and not only love, but of other kinds of terms that are often used And in their familiarity, they become inaccessible to us. We get confused about what they mean. And so we decided to pick Deuteronomy 6 and 1 John chapter 4 today. You could have picked any number of passages because the Bible wears itself out talking about this fundamental tenet that makes the universe go. And I'm imagining that there's nothing I'll say today that will be even remotely new I'm hoping that maybe in some way or another it will be like you going through an old photo album. People used to have those. Or through your catalogs of digital images on a computer somewhere and, and looking back at some gathering of friends at some instance you forgot about and having your heart warmed at the splendidness of it, the way you're transported when you hear a certain kind of music, a song that carries you back to a different era where things seemed lighter, where joy was rich, 
some picture you looked at of a maybe a little boy climbing up a cabinet on a counter with a pacifier, naked. And the reminder, hey, I forgot about that. But the bringing to your mind and your heart, the, the richness, the splendidness of it. Because I think when John talks about the splendidness of, of love that's been first shown to us and then is to reverberate out of us, He's talking about a splendid sort of thing. This is the sort of thing that all people in the world, regardless of their religious persuasion, at all times in the world, have looked at Jesus, regardless of whether they think of him as what he says he is. They've at least been stunned by his life of love, much like we're moved by Forrest Gump and his monumental self-giving towards Jenny his constancy, his loyalty, his setting of affection on her even though she did not deserve it and she mostly scorned it. Well, Jesus did that in real life. And it's a stunning thing to behold and so John wants it not to go unnoticed in us because he thinks if this is true and if it has things to do with us then it ought to permeate all the rest of our lives. It becomes really our new bottom line. You know, we live in a, in a culture where it's almost impossible to think of any of the things we do apart from some sort of economic motive, apart from some sort of performance motive, apart from some kind of way of keeping safe. And, you know, Jesus, to John and this group of disciples in the upper room on that day we call Monday, Thursday, where he gave this mandate, which is where Monday comes from. This command to love said to his disciples, and John heard it. John was the beloved disciple. The way that people are going to know that you follow me is not by merely by the kind of kindness that you show. It's not merely by the moral positions that you take. It's certainly not by the arguments that you can make. It is, though, by the way that you mimic the love that's been given to you toward each other. By this, he says, everybody's going to know that you're one of mine. That's how my PR is going to echo throughout the world. That is going to be my public service announcement, my advertisement to a watching world is you guys. You will convince the world that God is, as we sing, in the land. The way you love each other. And so John is continuing in that stream and saying, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and he knows God. Everyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Like Jesus, John is saying love has become a new kind of bottom line for us. There really isn't an aspect of your life where where love can't be a sort of criterion for everything that you're trying to decide. I like it when the Bible boils down things into simplicities. Because in my mind, everything is extraordinarily complex and mostly messy. And so when he says, if you love, you're born of God. If you don't, you're not. You realize, oh, that's a test. That's a litmus test for us. 
And of course, Jesus gave the same litmus test. And so I think about this when we go out into the world. I think when we start a staff meeting, I hate administration. And for some reason, it keeps coming at me and coming at me. And there's more and more details. And my head is going to explode. But I try when we pray together to remind us and myself, Lord, as we make these administrative decisions, remind us that they affect actual people. Even administration can be done in love. See, all of the things that we do can have love as the bottom line of them instead of just profit, instead of just how good we look. They can actually, even the details, even the things, it's just your lack of imagination that you haven't figured it out yet. Even the most dull, commonplace, seemingly secular things can be done in love. There's a great story called Fidelity that Wendell Berry writes. It's about this man who's well-beloved in his community who's dying. He's been put into the hospital to die And he's been hooked up with all kinds of machines. And his family, and most especially his son, realize that they've made a mistake. And so I don't know why they can't just have him released. So they take him. I'm not advocating anything. It's a fictitious story. And they they realize this man belongs to us. And he needs to be in our care while he dies. He needs to be in his digs. While he dies, he needs to be on his turf while he dies in the community that adores him while he dies, not in an impersonal place with people who don't know him. And so his son takes him. And a lot of the community members are involved in this. And at the end, a detective who's on the scene searching this kidnapping, this kidnapping of this man from the hospital, he comes into this room where there's a spokesperson, this old lawyer. And the detective says, this was not authorized. He asked nobody's permission. He told nobody. He signed no papers. It was a crime. You can't let people just walk around and do what they want like that. He didn't even pay the bill. And this seasoned old lawyer who was part of the family, he says, you know, where we come from, some of us think people belong to each other and to God. A fellow would need the hospital's permission to get in, but if he needs their permission to get out, he's in jail. I'm thinking of Matlock here. He said, would you grant a proprietary right or even a guardianship to a hospital that you would not grant to a man's own son? I would oppose that, whatever the law said. The detective answers him and says, well, anyway, all I know is that the law's been broken and I'm here to serve the law. And this lawyer says in these beautiful words that strike at the heart of all that we believe and all the vocations we find ourselves in, says this, my dear boy, you don't eat or drink the law or sit in its shade or warm yourself by it or wear it or have your being in it. The law exists only to serve. And the detective's incredulous. He says, to serve what? And the lawyer says, why, all the many things that are above it, like love. The man is silenced. And I think, if that's true, if, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that bearing each other's burdens is a fulfillment of the law of Christ, 
that all of the laws that are given to us in the Ten Commandments, that they can all be summed up by loving God with all you got and loving your neighbor as yourself, then there isn't really an aspect of your life, whether it be recreational, vocational, financial, relational, where you can't let love become the bottom line. Where you can't ask yourself, how at the bank do I process loans in a way that demonstrates love? How can I, in my child rearing, be more concerned about my sacrificing care for these little ones than merely how they produce and how good they make me seem? How can I, on the sports teams that I coach and the work that I do for my employer, how can I let love become the new bottom line that affects everything else, trusting that all sorts of other things will take care of themselves when there's a motive of operating for the good of another. There really isn't a realm of human experience, I don't think, where God intends for love to be absented. It's a new sort of bottom line for us. It's a litmus test. Whoever does not know love does not know God because God is love. And then he tells us what it is. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I sat in a meeting the other day with Pastor Boudreau. If you know Randy Neighbors, he reminds me of a Cajun Randy Neighbors. He's from Homa, Louisiana. And he's a fireball and he's a passionate man who loves God fiercely And he was in Katrina, and he's been instrumental. He's the pastor at Chattanooga Valley Baptist, and he was talking about the fear of these disillusioned young men on Sand Mountain who've had to watch their daddies sleep outside for days and days and get no help. He talked about the, the fierce anger of people in Katrina when they thought, this is America. He's Cajun, so he doesn't say America like George Bush, but... This is America, and how are people being stranded and forgotten and not being able to be helped? And it's the kind of question that we ask when people are in a devastating situation that love sort of dictates, doesn't it, that you send help, that you come into the fray? And of course, that's what John says has happened in the midst of the disaster of our own making, in the midst of all our God allergies, in the midst of all the destruction that we've caused by our preference to ourselves over all other selves, God sent His love, sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. He said, I will not stay at a distance. I will go for rescue. That's what love does. It lets itself be bothered. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, one of the things that we must know about love is it's not primarily this sort of gooey, sentimentalized thing that you catch like a virus that makes your stomach flutter, that makes you feel a little light on your feet. Happily, it does that sometimes, and it's fantastic. But the kind of love that is extolled here is a love that's quite costly, 
It's more in line with what John Gorka when he said, he said, love is never easy. It's almost always out of your way. It's not the path of least resistance. It's not some words you get to say. It's a straight line up the mountain. It's a wave rolling out from the shore. See, anybody who's looked at what Jesus did and coming into the devastation and saying, I'm going to let the devastation rub off on me, realizes that love is something far more severe than we normally think of. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. See, love lets itself be bothered. Have you heard C.S. Lewis say in one place that we're the kind of people who can, I'm going to contemporize it for a minute, we can watch a commercial and see something touching in it and feel warm emotions inside and think to ourselves in a self-satisfied kind of moment, what a loving fellow I am, can be filled with goodwill. And then suddenly, your husband walks in the room, and you want to kill him. Suddenly, your children walk in, and you say, can't you knock off that noise? That was English. Can't you knock off that noise? See, we're the kind of people who think that we are being loving when merely we are unbothered. And that most of the time, this litmus test, this bottom line of love doesn't even get to manifest itself until we have an occasion to show someone good in the face of their bad. To show someone that we're putting up with them when there's a whole lot to be put up with. That's the Bible kind of love. There's a story that I love. This book, have you seen this book? It's called Brothers Karamazov. And let me turn it sideways so you can see how large it is. These Russians know how to... Make words upon... I should be Russian. They go on and on and on and on. And so I've never made it past the first hundred pages, but I've read the first hundred pages like six times. I can't keep all the names straight. There's this scene, though, that gets at what John is talking about. The costliness of love. The fact that it's not ever something that just can live in our dreams. That... That God will let us simply be satisfied to think, well, I'm quite a loving person, but never actually be bothered or burdened or hijacked in our comforts. And so this woman comes to a priest named Father Zosima, and she's filled with doubts about her life, about her faith, about where she stands with God, and she's puzzling before him this Venerated saint, how can I know for sure about God? And he says, there's no proving it, but you can become convinced of it. And she says, how? How can I become convinced of my faith, of what I believe about God? And he says, by the experience of active love. See, let me pause for a minute. Part of what God wants when he calls us to love one another He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God wants the fulfillment, the full flowering, the experience of love in us. He wants us to know it. He wants the world to know it. He wants us to revel in the joy of it, even the costly sort of it. And that's not the sort of thing that ever happens by ourselves, usually. It's not primarily the sort of thing that happens in mystic experiences, which is good because most of you don't have mystic experiences. But it can happen in normal experiences, 
as you love one another. So this priest says, by the experience of active love, strive to love your neighbor actively and indefatigably. That's an SAT word. That means without tiring out. Strive to love your neighbor actively and without tiring out. Insofar as you advance in love, you will grow surer of the reality of God and of the immortality of your soul. If you attain a perfect self-forgetfulness in the love of your neighbor, then you will believe without doubt. And no doubt can possibly enter your soul. This has been tried, and this is certain. And she asks him, much like that lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? She says, an act of love? Well, there's another question. Such a question. You see, I so love humanity that would you believe it? I often dream of forsaking all that I have, of even leaving my daughter and joining the sisters of mercy. I close my eyes and I think and I dream. And at that moment, I feel full of strength to overcome all obstacles. No wounds, no festering sores could at that moment frighten me. I would bind them up and wash them with my own hands. I would nurse the afflicted. I would be ready to kiss such wounds. And this priest with all manner of pastoral tact says to this woman who's waxing on eloquently about her dreams of love, it is much and well that your mind is full of such dreams and not others. Sometime, unawares, you may actually do a good deed in reality. In seminary, they didn't teach us to do that. Hey, that's really great. It's really great that you have all these dreams about love. That you picture it and how you would love other people. Maybe one day you'll actually love a real person who's right beside you. He says. And of course, when he says that, he's he's hitting the tenor of the scriptures who always urge us not to a love in general, not to a love of humanity as some amorphous, abstract, faceless, nameless blob, It always urges us to love actual realities. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's not just a swirling blob of abstraction. Love Him by obeying Him, we're told. By taking what He says into you and saying, this is so valuable, I must do it. Love your neighbor. Not not merely some poor people in the Undeveloped two-thirds world. See, there's a trick that can happen to us. It happens to us all the time, especially as Christians, because we know we're called to love. We know love is an important thing that we can sometimes be acted on by our own minds and by the devil, I think, by thinking things like this. And this is from Screwtape Letters. He envisions this scenario. He says, here's what you want to do. If you can just cast your patient's love outward to people he's never met, cast the the love that they have for people in China and people in the former Soviet Union, people they don't know, people they've never had anything to do with. And what will happen is if you'll cast their love out there and then inside their house, without them realizing it, secretly let them start hating their mom. Secretly let them hate their wife, their husband, their next door neighbor. What you can succeed in doing is creating a situation where a person thinks of themselves as loving and all their loves are entirely imaginary 
And all their hates, which they don't know about, are actually real. That's a scary kind of thing. The Bible says, love your neighbor. This priest goes on because the woman says, yes, but could I endure such a life for long? That's the chief's question, my most agonizing one. Would I persevere long on the path if I were actually loving the poor, if I were actually loving people who were hard to love, and if the patient whose wounds I was washing did not meet me with gratitude, but worried me with his whims, without valuing or remarking, remarking about my charitable services, if he began abusing me and rudely commanding me and complaining to the superior authorities about me, what then? Would I persevere in love or not? And do you know I come with horror to the conclusion that if anything should dissipate my love to humanity, it would be ingratitude. In short, I am a hired servant. I expect my love at once, my payment at once, that is praise and the repayment of love with love. Otherwise, I am incapable of loving anyone. What could dissipate my love more than ingratitude? In short, I'm a hired servant. I expect my payment at once, that is praise and the repayment of love with love. Otherwise, I'm incapable of loving anyone. You know, a thing happens to us. I've noticed it in, over the years as we've tried to help the economically vulnerable in our community. I've noticed it in my own heart. I've noticed it all around me. There's this sense of wanting to help the worthy poor. There's a sense of trying to figure out who are the, who are the good people who can, we can help. Because in a lot of ways, we're hired hands because we don't really know a whole lot about Jesus' kind of love. And so we start to help people. We start to give to people who aren't going to give us back. And you know what you discover after not very long, if you actually start doing this and not just pontificating, you start to realize, oh my goodness, the poor are just as rotten as I am. You have in your head that you're going to help somebody and they're going to be overcome with the emotion of heart dissolvedness. They're going to be effusive in their praise. I can't believe you're Jesus incarnate to me. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Wearing themselves out, needing a hit of their inhaler because they've lost their breath so much in their praise of you. And when they don't do it, you get mad. Oh. But then it starts to cross your mind, if you're lucky. Holy cow. This is what the gospel says I'm like. That God sends his son into the world for me and says, I'm spilling my blood for you. I'm taking away all fear of judgment. I'm making sure that rejection has been amputated from your life forever. You will dwell in the presence of God. Behold what manner of love that God has given to us that we should be called children of God. You can know and rely on this love. God has given you everything. Do you guys find yourself waking up in the morning, jumping up for joy for that? You find yourself going to work in the morning and being like, Yeah, Jesus! Woo! I can't wait to get to the workplace and represent. Yeah, I think it would be on American Idol. Then I... None of you does that. We don't do it. 
And we expect other people to do it to us. And so that's why John says, look, 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 you've got, if you're going to be a person of love, if you're going to let love be your bottom line, you've got to keep looking at the fact that love's not that we love God, it's that he loved us first. We're pre-loved people. That God looked at us and he realized how rotten we were. He realized how, what ingrates we would be. He realized how we would be contemptuous toward his good gifts and how we'd be judgmental towards people when he hadn't been that way toward us. And he said, yet still, I can't make myself not want you. You're mine. I want you to know that you're mine. And I want you to know that it wasn't even your good sense that chose me. I selected you. See, John's contention is you you keep rehearsing that. You keep remembering that. You keep believing the splendidness of that. And you, even if you can't feel it, you act as if it's true. You know and rely, he says, on the love that God has for us. His spirit makes it true. And then sometimes you get to experience as you're loving somebody who's not going to love you back. And can I assure you of something? I don't know everybody's individual situation in here, but I know with 100% certainty that everybody in here, by God's kindness, has been given an assignment where just this afternoon, as soon as you leave here, you will have someone to love that will be difficult to love. You will have somebody that you have the opportunity to show warmth and affection, to sacrifice for, to do good for, and they will not deserve it. And they probably won't appreciate it. You probably won't get any repayment. But you might, if the Bible's true, have God's love made complete as you love them. And see, like we prayed earlier or discussed earlier with George McDonald saying that God withholds that we may ask, what also happens is even you're in these difficult love assignments, like with your spouse, like with your roommate, like with your boss, you find yourself, if you're really committed to love as a bottom line, you find yourself more and more dependent on the God from whom love comes. You have to keep running back to him and saying, holy cow. How on earth am I going to love that husband? I have given Kathy opportunity to pray every second of the day for love because it's so hard to love me. That's my gift to her. God has given you all similar gifts. There are people in your life that you don't know how to love. There are people that demand attention and bother and burden. And you guess what? You can't love somebody who's anxious without taking on some of the anxiety of yourself. You can't love somebody who's fearful and dirty without getting some fear and dirt on you. You can't love somebody who's devastated without getting some devastation on your skin and in your heart. But you've got a God for whom none of that is alien. He replaced himself with himself. He lives in us by his spirit. He manufactures this love that he calls us to. By which the world is meant to hum. This love is our new bottom line. And let me close with this. A story. You know, we have some famous people in our midst. Jameson Griffin is one of them. I, don't, I think he's our first person, in, at least in a couple of weeks, to be on CNN. I think ever to be on CNN. We don't ever get on CNN. 
Jameson was on CNN last night. He was on Channel 2 in Atlanta this week. There was a front page story in the newspaper about him because Jameson is a soccer coach at Southeast Whitfield in Dalton. His team made it to the Final Four in the state this year for the second time in a row, I think. Dude knows how to coach. He learned it from a book called Soccer for Dummies. (laughs) And you think I'm joking. Well, Jameson has a lot of students who are children of illegal immigrants, I assume. And he has one boy who got into some trouble and the INS got involved and he's, he's actually being deported today. And after a long investment of time and money, concern, prayers, this boy has become a believer. Jameson's been very invested, not just him, but some friends and his wife, I guess. And at the end of this interview, Jameson had this great quote, because see, there are kinds of issues in the world where you can have an opinion about them. Just like love, you can have an opinion about it. You can have these abstract commitments. But he said this, you know, I've realized in this situation that everything is black and white until it becomes flesh and blood. Everything's black and white until it becomes flesh and blood. And he was talking about, of course, the fact that he was letting himself get up close to a very complex problem. It wasn't a problem. It had a face. It was a boy. He was brought here when he was age six. And when I hear that quote, everything's black and white until it becomes flesh and blood. I think, isn't that exactly what Jesus wants his people to recognize? No one has ever seen God. God is an abstraction to the world. But if we love one another, it becomes flesh and blood. People can say, oh, I believe this about God. Oh, God would never do this. They can have all these opinions about God. They can have all these opinions about everything. But when they see up close a people who have known and relied on the love that God has for them, when they have reckoned with the reality that Satan is whispering in Jesus' ear on that cross, drop them. They're never going to be grateful for this. They're illegal. They're not going to praise you. They're not going to follow you. This is going to be all for naught. Listen to them scoffing. Drop them. Drop them. Drop them. And Jesus said, I will not. Nothing will ever rip them from my hands. He demonstrated far more beautifully than Forrest Gump with his tenacious love for Jenny that love is a bottom line that becomes flesh and blood. And when it is there, when you see it, you can't escape it. It's an apologetic. It's a defense of the reality of God that we get to carry around with us every day with all the annoying people we meet, including ourselves. Everything's black and white, he said, until it becomes flesh and blood. Jesus' intention, as we trust him, as we consider that he was sent into the world to save even us, is that we would go out into this world, not just in our words, but in our actions, in our obedience, in our sacrifice, in our letting ourselves be burdened by burdensome people. 
that we would show the reality of God, that love is our new bottom line. Amen.